So Philippians chapter 4, let's talk about a generous church this morning. You know, I heard about a, a man who called the office of a local church and asked if he could speak to the head hog at the trough. Well, the assistant who answered the phone that day was a little taken back. She, was like, she wasn't sure what she had heard. And, uh, and so she said, who, who are you wanting uh, to speak with? He's like, I want to speak to the head hog at the trough. And so she, now fully understanding that he actually said head hog at the trough, uh, said, well, sir, if you want to speak to the pastor, you probably need to show a little bit more respect and ask for the pastor or, 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 or the preacher. And, uh, and don't just refer to him as the head hog at the trough. And so the man understood kind of the way it was coming across. He's like, well, no, no, I'm, I apologize. I meant no harm in there. Uh, it's just that I've uh, really been considering giving $50,000 to the building fund at the local church. And so like mid-sentence and all of that, the assistant's like, hold on, hold that thought. I, I see the big pig walking through the door. <laughs> Pass it off to him. Thought that story was a little funny, and I think it's funny because I can concur with that. Uh, you can call me head hog at the trough, call me the big pig, whatever. If you've got a sizable gift to give the New Day capital campaign, uh, you call me whatever you would like. Um, I say that in jest, but I probably need to just make sure you understand that I am jesting with that comment. Um, though we will receive all gifts, sizable, non-sizable, whatever. We're, we're good with that. But I need to make sure that you know I'm joking, uh, because there are a lot of people, and you've probably come around these folks, maybe it's been you at some point, that think that preachers and churches, the only thing they care about is your money. I, I've met people like that. I've got people like that in my family. I can remember, I grew up in a large church in a smaller town in northwest Arkansas. Now it's kind of a big city, a big metro area, but still a very large church. But I remember knowing people, even in my family, who would make comments about my pastor growing up and, and how he was flying around on a helicopter and it was six flags over Jesus and all these weird ideas about our church. And so really the idea came back to is all they care about is your money. Well, that's not true, number one. Now, sometimes that is true in some churches or some preachers, but it's not true of all preachers and all churches. It's not that they want your money, but as we see here from the Apostle Paul, they want what God wants for you, and many times that has to touch what's most important to you, which is your money. And so people who are of that sort of opinion uh, think that preachers and teachers should never talk about money, should never speak about financial issues, should never ask people to give. I mean, think about that. Why, why would anyone think that this subject is off limits in the church and with the preacher? Why should it be off limits? If I read my Bible correctly, one in every six verses in the first three Gospels deals with money. Either the use or the misuse. Directly or indirectly, if you were to read through the parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospels, you would see that 16 of the 44 parables Jesus teaches deal with money on some level. So who was this Jesus? Was he traveling around Palestine as some sort of fundraiser? Did he have some sort of cause that, that he was traveling and, and journeying around with these 12 disciples to get your money or their money to fund his cause? Was that what Jesus was doing? That's not what Jesus was doing at all. He was not on some sort of campaign for finances. He was not some sort of mission to raise money for a cause. No, see, Jesus dealt with money matters because he understood that money matters. 
matters in all facets of life. It matters how we live our lives, how we view the things in our lives. He understood that people are most like God when they are giving. Good friend of mine, Johnny Hunt, I've told you this before. This is what he says about that. He says, you're, you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave. God's a giver. We're never more like Jesus than when we are giving. Randy Alcorn in his book, a really small book, but a really good book, The Treasure Principle, I would commend it to you, says this. He says, gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. Then he goes on to, to explain that giving is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. He, he's talking about how grace is the action and our giving is a reaction to that gift that we've been giving. You see, we give because he's first given to us. Sadly, the reason some people might think that preachers in churches should not address money issues is because preachers in churches have mis, uh, uh, misappropriated and, and abused this subject. They, they've wrongly and selfishly taken passages like Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, or, or Malachi 3 and many others, and, and they take them and use them out of context. You say, what do those passages have to say about money? Well, listen to Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Someone who would take this out of context would say, if you'll just give, if you'll just do this, if you'll sow this seed, then look what you can get. You're going to be watered. Malachi 3 verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Some preachers would take that and talk about, man, if you'll just give to this, look at all the Lord's going to give to you. It promises that he will give, but it also only promises till there is no more need, not excess, but he's going to take care of you. He's going to meet your needs. So these passages and others have been misused to play upon people's innate selfishness and greed. I mean, who doesn't want to make a profit? Any of you guys out there, when you make an investment, want to lose the investment? Right? You dabble in the stock market a little bit, and, and you're hoping, can we please have a bear market? Right? Can we come down in our, in our, in our income? Can we lose uh, our backsides in the things that we've invested? No, none of us want that. We want to grow things. So false preachers from this standpoint would tell people that if they will give, then they're going to get. If you sow a gift, then God's going to multiply it, give back to you 30, 60, maybe even 100 times more than you've given but ultimately, the goal is all about just lining your pockets, whether it's the preachers or the person who's being persuaded to do this. And so this abuse should not lead us, though, to forsake any and all teaching on money matters. Just because some abuse it doesn't mean we just walk away from it because it's still in the Bible, right? This is why we try to go verse by verse through the scriptures, because we don't want to pick passages that are easy and comfortable and palatable. We want to preach the whole counsel of God. And so the areas that make, make us uncomfortable, we're still going to touch on and teach. Money is one of those areas. Some of you guys are flipping out right now because you're like, what is he going to say about money? 
I don't have two nickels to rub together. What is he going to call me to in just a moment? Hold on for that. (laughs) I say that in jest, but the Lord hopefully will speak to us in the area of giving. Whether we're giving well, we're giving faithfully, giving generously, giving uh, just uh, with our whole hearts, or we're stingy, and as Malachi would say, stealing, robbing God. May God speak to us this morning. So the abuse that we see that we're talking about here in our day was not uncommon in the day of Paul. It was not uncommon in the day of the early church. There's always been uh, abuse when it comes to this issue. But thankfully, the apostles did not shrink back from addressing this pivotal issue, this pivotal part of life. Uh, Like Jesus, they understood that generosity affected both the physical and the spiritual aspects of a believer's life. And that's what I want you to see this morning as we talk about this generous church and hear it as a call for us to be a generous church. So we're coming to the end of this letter Paul wrote to the Philippians. We see here that Paul is again expressing his gratitude for their partnership, their support in the work of the gospel. We talked about that some last week. He's commending them for their generosity while at the same time showing us the inseparable relationship between finances and gospel partnership. So as we work through these verses, what I want us to do is discover that a generous church uses the resources God has entrusted to them. We're stewards, we're managers, we're not owners. So we're to use that, steward that, to supply the needs of others in the work of the gospel. And if you will look with me, let's read verses 14, and let's just read through the end of the chapter. Yet, Paul says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the gift, or I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you your spirit. Paul here is expressing his gratitude. He's sharing how thankful he was for these Philippians. He's returning to the language that he opened this letter up with, expressing that gratitude. I thank God in all of my remembrance, in all of my prayers, he says there in chapter 1. So he's resuming here what he began back in verse 10 that we looked at last Sunday, moving it a step forward, talking about how grateful what they were doing and ministering to his needs. Back in chapter, or verse 10, I should say, like we looked at last Sunday, he's joyfully expressing how he's received their gift as a tangible evidence of their concern for him, and how that had not just been a concern, but how it's bloomed into a gift, a provision to meet a need. And so their gift met his material needs there in prison. It proved their partnership with him in 
affliction. Verse 14, he talks about that, that they're sharing in his trouble, and ultimately it shows their partnership in the work of the gospel. Paul saw the Philippians as gospel partners. And then we move to verse 22 that we just read here as this chapter is concluding, this letter is concluding, and that we see here that because of their partnership in large part, Paul's there in Rome under arrest, awaiting trial, awaiting the verdict, but he never stops preaching the gospel. How can he not preach the gospel? I mean, think about what all the Lord's done for him, but what he's doing for him through the church. They're sending him encouragement. They're seeking to meet his physical needs. So he's encouraged spiritually. He's enriched physically. Therefore, he's enabled to continue to preach. And what does Paul say about what's happening in Rome? He says, all the saints greet you, but here's specifically some other saints, those in Caesar's household. What does that mean? More than likely, it means this. As Paul's under arrest in Rome, having people come in and out to guard him, to talk with him, to set up things about the trial, whatever was going on there, the thing on Paul's lips was the gospel. And the people in Caesar's kingdom, even his own household, are hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and being transformed by the gospel. That's what was going on there. And the Philippians had a part in that. They're sharing with Paul. They're showing their generosity. So as we finish this incredible letter that teaches us how to find joy in Christ, find joy in the work of the Lord, I want us to learn three things about what a generous church is. First of all, a generous church partners with others in the work of the gospel. A generous church partners with others in the work of of the gospel. We see here in verses 14 and 15 that the Philippian church was this partner with Paul in the mission of the gospel. They're working with him. Verse 14, he talks about how they're sharing in his trouble. It's important that we remember how this church began. If you know the, 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 the book of Acts, if you know the accounts that's going on there, you know in chapter 16 how the Philippian church came into existence. We know the story, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're over in, in, in the um, Asia Minor area. They leave that and cross over. They come to Macedonia. They, they land there at the port city of Neapolis, and immediately they go to the city of Philippi, where they begin to preach the gospel. A woman named Lydia hears and receives. A church is born. While there, they're Paul and Silas, that is, were beaten. They were arrested, eventually escorted out of town. But before they were beaten, arrested, and left the town, what was there in Philippi? A church. A local church was planted. A local church had been invested in. A local church understood the mission of the gospel. Leaving Philippi, Acts tells us that Paul quickly passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and arrived in the city of Thessalonica where he started another church, Acts chapter 17, you see that. What we discover from Philippians chapter 4, verse 16 here in our passage this morning is that by the time uh, Paul is in Thessalonica, the Philippians have already began to send aid, already beginning to invest in Paul, already coming alongside Paul as a partner in the gospel. How long have they been a believer? Not very long. And yet this young church, infant church, is already on mission with the apostle Paul, ministering to his needs, meeting his needs. 
investing in him so he can continue to further the gospel. And so he's preaching the gospel there in Thessalonica. Before he leaves to go to Athens and Corinth, they are already sending missionaries, helpers to him. Paul was only there for a few weeks, according to what we read in Acts. So the Philippian believers were partners. They're not customers. How many times uh, in the church of America do we see true partners amongst the church? Well, I think what we really see in, in a lot of churches today are not partners. We see customers. We, we see consumers in the local church today. But these Philippians were partners in the work of the gospel. In fact, Paul, what we read here, didn't view them as anything but a co-laborer in Christ with him. See, the Philippians had put skin in the game. They weren't just there for the show. They weren't just there to kind of take in what was happening. They wanted to put skin in the game. And how do you put skin in the game? Part of it is a financial investment. I'll say more about that in a moment. What were these Philippian believers like? Were they just multi-millionaire people? Were they just guys that, that owned Fortune 500 companies? Were these stock geniuses that just made it rich? Who were these Philippians? Were they just ragtag, regular people like you and I? Not wealthy. Some of them were. Lydia was wealthy. There was probably a, 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 an array of different types of people, but most of them, I believe, were probably blue-collar believers. And yet... They had earned a reputation for giving sacrificially, giving generously, giving cheerfully to support the work of the mission. Paul talks about that in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And so we see here as we look at this that a generous church understands that the kingdom of God is bigger than them. The Philippians were never just enamored with themselves, never just enamored with their local context. They understood the kingdom of God was bigger than themselves. You see, this kind of church understands that gospel advancement is going to require partnership. The Philippians couldn't do it themselves. Paul couldn't do it themselves. But they could do more together than they could do on their own. So they partner with one another. It's going to take more than just one church to reach what Revelation 7, 9 would tell us. Every tribe, tongue, people, and language. The nations of the world will not come to faith in Christ with just one church. If that was the case, we would only have the Jerusalem church. But what happens in the book of Acts? God says, stay here till the Holy Spirit comes. Then I want you to scatter. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. They weren't doing that. God caused some hardship to come to scatter the apostles, to scatter the other early believers. And what begins to take place is a multiplicity of churches all throughout the area. And the gospel spreads like wildfire. Because it wasn't about one church. It was about the church with all kinds of locations. And so when we think, think about that, it's going to take more than one church to reach a local community. Hey, we're not the only church in Powhatan. We need more churches. We need to start more churches in Powhatan. We need to start more churches in the greater Richmond area because we need to partner with others to take the gospel locally and globally. The Philippians partnered with Paul as he planted a local church all throughout their, re, re, their region in different locations. And a generous church partners with church planters to plant churches today, locally, nationally, and globally. You say, are we doing that? In a small way, we are. 
A couple years ago, we decided to come alongside Josh Weatherspoon and his planting team to plant the Way Church in Short Pump. They launched that church last year in March, March 1st, I believe, two weeks before the world shut down. You know when you don't want to, sh- to plant a church? When COVID is starting, right? Uh, all church planners and all church planning curriculum for the rest of eternity will say, if you know a global pandemic is coming and everything that surrounds that, don't start a church. But this is what Josh Weatherspoon and his team have done. They've thrived throughout it. They were uh, out of a location two weeks after they got a location. They bounced around for a few different places, and they found a home now. Through all of that, they've seen people come to Christ, be baptized, be discipled, and do all kinds of things that are nothing more than to the glory of God. We're a partner in that. Financially, we invest in them. Now, we need to do more than that. We need to do more in the area of prayer for them. We need to do more in the area of service with them. But we are a partner in that church plant. We also are partners with a young family in South Asia because we're online. I'm not going to say their names, but if you've been around uh, Red Lane long enough, you probably know who I'm talking about. But they're doing a great work in a major metropolitan area. They're planting churches. They're doing the work in the city, but they're also going out into the countryside, surrounding the farmland, surrounding that metro area. And they're doing an incredible Acts-type approach to evangelism, quartering off, looking at everything and making sure they're going grid by grid through that region to take the gospel to every single person in the area. This week, I have an opportunity to have a Zoom call with another potential partnership. I don't know what it's going to materialize to be, but this gentleman's going to be planning a church in Blacks, Blacks, what am I trying to say? Black, it's not Blackstone, uh, where Virginia Tech is. Blacksburg, yeah, yeah, down there in that southwest region. You know, this Arkansan doesn't know all the cities of Virginia just yet. Give me a few years. I was trying, in my head, I'm thinking Blackstone, but I knew that wasn't right. But he's going to be planning a church down there. This guy grew up in this church. And so I'm, I'm excited to hear what is, what's on his heart, what the Lord's leading him to do, and, and just beginning to pray for that. And pray, what that, you know, pray for us as we think through what that's going to look like, potentially uh, for us as a church, but more than anything, what it's going to look like for him as he plants a church. You see, a generous church partners with others in the work of the gospel. Number two, a generous church resources their partners in the work of the gospel. So partnering, now resourcing those partners. Paul here in verses 16 and 18 brings to light the inseparable relationship between financial giving and gospel partnership. Here's the reality. If you're not giving, you're not a partner. That goes for us as a church. If we say, well, we're partnering with this church plant. Well, how much are you doing financially to help them keep the doors open and and to do ministry? Well, we're not really doing that because we can't afford it. Well, you're not a true partner. Man, I'm a member of Red Lane. I'm an attender of Red Lane. That's my church. Well, are you financially in the game with us? No, I can't do that. I got too many other things. You're not a partner here. You're a spectator. You're a consumer. You're a customer. I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be harsh. I don't say that to to step on your toes, though it should step on your toes a little bit. I say that lovingly. I say that graciously. I say that as your pastor to call you to partnership. Obedience to the Lord brings blessing. I want that for your life. I want you to grow 
but I also believe that God wants to use and, and desires to use what he's given you for the sake of the gospel through his church. The Philippians were partners resourcing the Apostle Paul. So for this reason here, pastors and teachers and churches as a whole should never shrink back from addressing the issue of money. That's why I was pretty stern right there, firm with what I said. See, money matters. It matters what you do with what God's given you. You say, why does it matter so much? Because it matters to you. What is the most precious thing, maybe outside of your children in your life? It is your money. Somebody begins to infringe on that, you will take up arms and fight for it. You say, no, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, try it. Let somebody break in your house or or, or rob you or do something. You will do whatever you can to guard that. And it's understandable. You should. It matters. So the church's task, our task is to make disciples, right? That's Matthew 28, verse 19. It takes money to fulfill that mandate. You, You don't fulfill the Great Commission on, boy, I wish we could do that. Boy, I hope to do that. No, you fulfill the great commandment by taking resources the Lord has entrusted to his people and putting them where it counts. You see, it requires money to fund the work of the gospel abroad. Missionaries don't just live overseas and invest in lost people and bring the gospel to nations who have never heard it. They don't do that with fairy dust. They do it because God's people have resourced them to stay on the field. I, I'm grateful to be a Southern Baptist. Aren't you grateful to be a Southern Baptist? You say, I, I, you, some of you may not really understand what that means to be a Southern Baptist. Here's what, one thing it means. As Southern Baptists, our missionaries, 4,000 or so missionaries living abroad on the field with their families do not have to pick up and come back every single year for three months to raise funds to go back on the field for nine months. Why? It's because we as Southern Baptists, through what's called the Cooperative Program, pool our money together to put our missionaries on the field, keep them there, take care of them and their families so they can do the work of the gospel amongst the peoples of the world. That right there in and of of itself is enough to be a Southern Baptist. That should have got some sort of applause. (laughs) Takes money. To do the work of the gospel abroad. It takes money to financially support a church planner and a church plant in a neighboring community. Josh Weatherspoon and his team and that young church is not going to survive without the help of others. They can't just survive again on fairy dust. They need investment from God's people to make sure those folks can survive and begin to build a church. It takes money to fund the budget needs of the local church. I mean, we can't do what we do if we don't have moolah in the bank sports camps around the 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 corner we saw banners you pulled into the 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 facilities the parking lot this morning it takes money to put on a sports camp it takes money to send kids to kids camp our students are going to camp in a couple weeks it takes money for those things to happen takes money for us to send teams on short trips to go overseas it takes money to do the lord's Work And for this reason, God has instructed in his word how and what believers are to give through the local church. It begins with the tithe. It begins with the 10% of one's income given to the church to fund the church's budget needs. You see, a church, a generous church, builds into their budget partnerships to multiply the reach of the gospel. And so we gratefully, uh, wonderfully support the 
ministry there through the Way Church. We support South Asia missions. We support the greater mission work of the Southern Baptist Convention that I just mentioned earlier. Also through the North American Mission Board as we plant churches on the continent of North America. Our two mission agencies are funded through our gifts each and every week. When you faithfully and generously give to the budget needs of Red Lane and above and beyond the tithe to mission offerings, you are helping to partner and to resource those partners locally, nationally, and globally so that what Paul says here about himself is true of them. They are well supplied. Amen? A generous church resources their partners. Number three and lastly, a generous church pleases God by their sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Verse 17, Paul adds to his theology of giving and receiving by highlighting the spiritual and eternal significance of being generous. Look there in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's not pressuring for more gifts for his own benefit. That's not what we should ever read into this text. Paul's not saying, hey, uh, could you send some more? Uh, I'm getting a little lean here. That's not what he's talking about. His motive is simply to see them profit spiritually. He rejoices because the Philippians are acting like Christians. And he sees that as a blessing. That's a good thing. You're looking like Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Again, let's go back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11. Who's the first believers in the era of the new early church to be referred to as what we would call Christians. Who, who is that? What city is that? Antioch. In Antioch, the, the, the pagans there heard of Jesus. Maybe even some of them had been down in Palestine. They'd been in Jerusalem. They'd been in Judea. They've heard, seen Jesus teach. And so what they were seeing before them in these believers in Antioch looked a whole lot like and sounded a whole lot like what they had heard about Jesus. And they said simply, you are Christians. You are little Christ. When I see you walking around, when I see you giving, when I see you serving, when I see you ministering to people, when I see you loving one another as the brethren, I see Jesus because Jesus is in you. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. Paul's rejoicing over this because these believers are acting like believers. Their sacrificial gifts to Paul and the work of the gospel, verse 18 tells us, they were fragrant offerings. Not offerings to Paul, offerings to who? To God. They're giving sacrificially to the Lord. They were pleasing and acceptable. What are offerings? We heard about tithes. What's an offering? Let's just kind of parse these out a little bit. What's an offering? Well, if you read the, the law, you would see that an offering is an act of worship. It's part of worship. You bring an offering to the Lord. The Bible commands the people of God to give not out of duty, but out of love. To give out of Grace, to give out of response. Remember, the action is God's grace in you. The reaction is our gift back to him. Don't give out of duty, get out of, give out of a heart of worship. See, the people of God should give and be generous because of the value they find in God. That's why we give. Worship, we say this sometimes, can be better described as worship. That's why the law demanded the Jews to offer their first, to give their best to the Lord, because God is worthy of their first, which is their best. 
So ultimately, the attitude of one's generosity is directly proportionate to how one esteems the Lord, how we value the Lord, how we elevate the Lord in our lives, what priority he sets on in our lives. That's what worship is. So when we give, it pleases God, according to verse 18. He's pleased because we esteem him worthy of our worship, worthy of our best, worthy of our all. He's also pleased, Paul is, because he knows this is what's best for us. Don't misunderstand what was just said. We don't give to be forgiven, right? You don't put money in the offering plates on a Sunday morning to try to score points with the Lord. Well, I had a really rough week. This is a sinful week. I need to put a few more dollars in the plate. We laugh at that, but how many times do we live like that? Well, I just got to go to church, man. I, I've been walking. I, I've, I've been as far from the Lord as possible. I got to get in church. That dude's going to fry me up like a crispy critter if I don't get to church. <laughs> really? Is that, that, that how God works? That's how we operate sometimes. We don't score points with the Lord. But when we do give and live generously and just try to use the resources God's given us to, to be good stewards, it pleases him. It, it shows him that we value him, that we're not living with clenched fists. You see, giving gave the Philippians opportunities to trust the Lord in new and fresh ways. Go with me with, for a moment. Through their gifts, they got to witness the provision of God in their lives. It probably made no sense for these blue-collar, no-collar type of believers in the church at Philippi to give sacrificially to this mission cause, right? It probably made no sense. And yet when they did that, they got to witness God doing something extraordinary in their own life because the Bible still says that if you will give, verse Malachi 3.10, God will meet your needs. Paul says right here in this letter to the Philippians, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying this, hey, Philippians, I understand that it probably didn't make financial sense for you to make this investment, to resource me as a partner, but because you've done that, God's word is amply sufficient to say he will meet your needs. But today we, like so many Christians all throughout the centuries, doubt that. Boy, I, I've got to hold on to this. I've got to hold on to this. Last year, we were scheduled, I was scheduled to sign the contract on the loan to in, uh, enable this construction renovation project to happen. And so that was going to happen in March. COVID shuts the world down. And, you know, as elders, we're kind of like, Ooh, what should we do here? I called, talked to some of my pastor friends, uh, guys that I know who have built millions and millions of dollars worth of facilities and done all kinds of things. I'm like, what do you think I should do? They're like, you should not build. You should not. Until we know more, you shouldn't do anything. And I'm like, well, that stinks. Um, it's not really what I wanted to hear. And so we, as elders, decided to pause for two months. I just sensed, and I believe the rest of the elders were of the same vein, that the Lord had put this in our hearts. Why would he not take care of it. Did COVID catch God by surprise? Surprise? You think he was setting up in heaven like, oh my goodness, Dr. Fauci is announcing that COVID <laughs> is going to destroy the world. No, he was, I'm going to hold my comment on there, but uh, <laughs> I didn't take him by surprise. 
And so I just sense, man, we, we got to believe God here. I signed a contract in May of last year. We broke ground in the first part of July of last year. Finished that thing. Literally, we closed the books last week on that building over there. Announced this week through our newsletter that the renovation of this has now been pushed to December 27th because of some scheduling conflicts with the contractor and delayed jobs that they got going on right now. Uh, but we will start that December 27th. If we doesn't start with that company, I will be in here with a hammer starting at December 27th. <laughs> Why are we doing this? We believe God. We believe God. We believe God's going to use this to better serve our people and the people in this community that God's called us and we're striving to reach. We give because Jesus is a giver. We don't give to score points. We understand the gospel that grace is by faith and that's how we receive it. But when we give, God is pleased. Paul continues to flesh the point out. I got to hurry here. Verses 19 and 20. I just mentioned verse 19, he's going to supply and meet our needs. See, giving pleases God because it's the right thing to do. I believe Paul also understood that giving generously also enables God to grow the Philippians' faith. It gave them opportunities to trust the Lord. It's giving us opportunities to trust the Lord. That's why I just shared that story. I mean, we stepped out on faith last year thinking we don't really understand What's happening? In May, we were not even, we, actually, we had just been allowed to come back in person because of a court order type thing, lawsuit that, that churches won in Virginia. Otherwise, we would have still been locked down. We just believe God. And God has continued to fund what he birthed in this church's heart. Philippians had an opportunity to trust the Lord in new and fresh ways. They're, through their gifts, they got to witness the provision of God in their lives as he pulled in and met those needs. It might have made no sense, but God was doing something incredible. Now, let's not misunderstand or misuse verse 19. Paul's not saying the Lord will provide for our greed, but he is saying the Lord will provide and meet your need. And that may not always be financial. There are Christians who die poor. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean life is easy, life is rosy, you've got $10,000 a day in the bank account just flowing in. It doesn't mean any of those things. It may mean that you die hungry and, and, and clothes lit, clothes, without clothes and poor. Sometimes my brain goes faster than my mouth can keep up with. So do we believe God will meet our need. I want to share a story I came across in my study. Tony Merida, pastor of church in Raleigh, professor at Southeastern Theological Seminary, shares about a young couple who were in seminary there, I believe Southeastern. They had served in student ministry prior to moving the area. And while as a student pastor, the way the story goes is this student pastor and his wife had a meager salary, which means they got paid beans and rice by the church because the churches, well, I don't know about the church, but I know a lot of churches, they, they're stingy and they don't pay their staff well. Thankfully, our church is not that way. And so this young, pastor, young student pastor and his wife are living on meager rations. And one particular day, they gets down to the, the nitty gritty. They got 13 cents in the bank account. Now he's about to get paid, but because he's not paid yet, 13 cents is not going to put food on the table and provide all of the other things they needed. And here's what they really, really needed. Toilet paper. I mean, I, last year when COVID was happening, we were off 
freaking out. Where are we going to get TP? Are we going to really have to use corn cobs? I mean, that's what we're thinking. <laughs> like going back to 1800 type days. So they're out of toilet paper. And so this young couple, you can imagine, is frustrated, but they decide to pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious about nothing, but in all things, pray. Let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God. You know the verses, right? So they get down, they pray, God, this, this is where we're at. We trust you. We know you've called us. We know you've told us in your word. You're going to resource us. Lord, help us. We need toilet paper. That night, student ministry came over and did what student ministries do. Where's Nate at? When he gets a house here, student ministry does this, right? Yeah, when? That's the key question. When he gets a house here in the cottage, which we need some help with that. Um, so the student ministry comes over, and they apparently don't know what they're doing when they try to roll the student pastor's house. And so they use one roll of toilet paper. Woo! You know, throw that thing around. I don't know how many trees he had. Instead of all the toilet, roll, toilet paper rolls, they use one, but leave the rest of them on the porch, ring the doorbell, and run off. Young student pastor and his wife come out, open the door. We're like, oh, got, tree got toilet paper, but look how God has provided for our need. It's a true story. Unless Tony's lying. <laughs> and my God will supply every need of yours. See, a generous church who leverages what God has been entrusted, has entrusted to them for the sake of the gospel, will never lack God's abundant provision. He does all of this according to verse 20 because it's all about the glory of God. That the peoples in the community, the peoples of the nations, can look and see a church that looks like they don't have anything, and yet God continues to fund them and the work. It's an amazing thing. It may not make logical sense for a church of our size, with our kind of membership. We don't have Fortune 500 people. We don't have executives in our church like that. We're pretty much blue-collar, sometimes no-collar type of church. And yet God does some amazing things through us. You know, I don't say this to brag. I don't say this to be arrogant, but I do want to brag for God's glory and just to help you understand. But when I go and I meet with people in our state or even around the country, and I talk with other guys in churches our size, I am just blown away and thrilled, not because I'm competing with them, but I, when I see the numbers of like what our church would give to Lottie Moon versus what another church our size gives, what we would give to Annie Armstrong, what another church our size, you give historically way beyond what most other churches do. We are a generous, blessed church. To God be the glory. It's an amazing thing that God's doing here. It was an amazing thing what God was doing to the church there in the city of Philippi. They gave generously to the work of the gospel, and Paul makes it clear that God was pleased and glorified. Why is generosity in the life of the church important? Let's land the plane. It's important because it's indicative of the life of Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave. And the church of Antioch is a prime example. We mentioned them earlier. The citizens of Antioch were the first ones, as I said earlier, to be labeled as Christians. They looked at them and said, man, they look just like Jesus. They look like little Christ. See, the people in Antioch had heard about Jesus, and they saw in these people just what they had seen and heard in Jesus. They spotted love within the church that expressed 
And it was expressing how they cared for one another. They spotted love for believers, expressing how they gave to meet their needs. They spotted love for the nations, expressing their commitment to fund the gospel work among the peoples of the nations. The church in Antioch was a generous church, and I'm grateful that we too are a generous church. This church in Antioch was only able to be generous because it had generous members. You see, a church is only as good as its membership, right? You look at a lousy church, it's because it has lousy members. You look at stingy churches, you have stingy members. You see churches that love the Lord Jesus and are generous, it's because they love the Lord Jesus and are generous. As a Christian sitting here, part of our church, maybe you're a member, a tender, maybe you're here for the you know, first couple weeks or whatever. Are you generous? Are you a giver? Do you invest? Do you allow God to kind of use you as a conduit to just allow his resources to flow through you and to resource his work among other folks? Do you tithe? Do you give your first and your best? Do you say, well, I tithe if I have the money. That's not what I said. And that's not what the Bible lay out. If I read my Bible correctly, a tithe, according to the Old Testament, is a first tenth, not a last tenth. Here's what I know about that. If you're going to operate on the last tenth versus the first tenth, you'll never have the last tenth. Something will come in and steal everything. You'll never have enough month to give that way. But if you'll start with the first, it's indicative of the whole, and it's your best. It shows that we value and worship the Lord. Do you give above and beyond the tithe to the Lord's needs as the Lord directs? You see, an offering is a free will offering. It's not something that's mandated. You say, I don't think we should have mandated. We can... We, we can argue that point. I think I would win that point, but I welcome that. If you say, I don't think we as Christians should tithe. We're a new covenant. That's old covenant. Well, we don't have time to really go into that discussion, but I don't believe it ever was negated. I think that's the entry point for us as believers, and God grows us from there. And so after the 10%, that's free will offering. That's as the Lord puts in your heart and directs. But we need to be following that direction, are we? I know the answers that many people would give to these questions Answers like, I don't have enough money, I'm not rich. I'll do it when I'm in a better financial position. The Bible would tell us that giving has nothing to do with the level of worth, the level of worth a person has. The Bible would tell us that it's all about the level of worth the person places on the Lord. The Bible simply instructs us to be generous, to be obedient, and to trust God. And when we do this, as Paul magnifies here in verse 17, God develops us in spiritually, spiritual ways that otherwise could never happen. Why? Because you're trusting with the Lord with something that's super precious to you. And until you take the box off that precious thing and say, Lord, it's yours, it's not mine, he can never deal with that, which means you can never grow in that area. So I want to call us today to be obedient and faithful in the area of tithing and giving to the Lord's work. Where of the Lord's landing that on you this morning? I call you to be obedient to that. Not because I say it, and I'm not saying it, the Lord says it, and it's like a hammer on your life. It's not that. It's like, man, the Lord is valuable. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is good. How could we not do this? How could we not do this? I call us to be faithful in the area of giving. Here, here's a question. Can you imagine the gospel work we could resource if everyone in our church just tithed? I don't know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. It would probably not, it would keep me up at night, right? I wouldn't be able to sleep. Or I would treat you different. And that's another thing. 
I neither want to beat you over the head or, or flatter you. And neither one of those are good. So I don't know what you give, but I do know that not everyone tithes. That's just a fact. It's a fact in every church. But what would happen if we did? If we said, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. I'm just going to be obedient in this area. And straight off the top, 10%. Does it make sense financially? I've told you before, we moved, every ministry move we've ever made, Kara and I, never made financial sense. Went into it thinking, well, we're 500 in the hole each month. Don't know how this is going to work. We're going to believe God. And every single time, without exception, God meets our needs. Somehow, some way. Because that's what he says. What would happen if we all tithe? If your finances are a mess, hey, this morning I call you to get help. Some of you literally can't do anything because you have such a financial mess going on in your lives. Every single fall uh, for the last several years, we've offered Financial Peace University. We are supposed to have that again. We're scheduled to have that again. Get in that. Allow somebody to come alongside you and teach you biblical principles about how to manage your money. You have enough money to take care of your life if you'll manage it better. It's not a resourcing problem. It's a managing problem. We could say that about the federal government, the state government, everything else. Don't have time for all that. Quit trying to distract me. I call you this morning to fulfill your New Day pledge, if you made one. You've been around here a long time, and we launched that. It'll be three years. Uh, we'll complete this New Day campaign this November, three-year capital campaign. If you made a pledge, I, I would call you to honor your pledge commitment. If you've finished your pledge commitment, I would encourage you. I'm not going to call you. I would encourage you to, to, to prayerfully ask the Lord if there's something that he would like for you to do above and beyond that. If you're new to Red Lane, and we have several I mean, several families. It's amazing. Six years, we've been around this beautiful church, the difference, the change in makeup. Uh, we've had people move away. We've had people die. We've had just natural attrition, and God has continued to bring people our way. And so you're new to Red Lane. You didn't have an opportunity to get in on the New Day Capital Campaign last year. Hey, right now's the time. Right now's the time. Get involved. The renovation we're doing on this floor will benefit and bless all of us and be an asset to our community. Invest in that as the Lord directs you. We're a generous church because we have many generous members. Let's strive to continue to level up in our generosity as we partner and resource the work of the gospel here and there.